Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Today is Friday, January 14th, 2022. This is Shannon, and tonight I'm here with Brooke and Stacy, and we are taking Book Bistro back to its roots. One of the very first episodes we did was a dual timeline novel episode, and we are back to revisit this marvelous type of book. So I'm going to start us off followed by Stacy and Brooke will end the round. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. So my first pick tonight is The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes by Alyssa R. Sloan. So as I'm describing this, I want everybody to think about the Spice Girls. Because this, I'm going to talk about a, a fictitious um, musical group. And they remind me so much of the way people kind of viewed and glommed on to the Spice Girls when they first hit the scene. So this is the story of Cassie Holmes, of course. And at the beginning of the book, we learn that she has committed suicide and no one really knows why. So the book is told from a series of different perspectives. There are four girls, Rose, Meredith, Cassidy, and Yumi. And they are the four girls who make up this sensational singing group known as Gloss. So these are young women when Gloss first starts, like 18, 19, um, and they really take the music scene by storm. Like everyone is so into them. But beneath the surface, of course, you know, we see that fame isn't all it's cracked up to be. Um, we see the huge toll that fame takes on these four young women. And you know, you, you think about these people who tour together and spend so much time together and you think they must have like this really close relationship. And when it comes to gloss, like that's not necessarily true. These character relationships are so incredibly complex. So the story moves back and forth in time from like the early 2000s, like, you know, um, 2000, 2001 to like 2018, 2019. And we see how the three remaining members of Gloss are dealing with what they've learned about Cassidy's death. We also see in the earlier timeline kind of how Gloss 
became so famous, how Cassidy joined this group that kind of already existed, but hadn't broken into the music scene until she joined them. Um, it's women's fiction, I would say, with, I wouldn't call it a mystery. Like there's a little bit of like, you know, you're not sure why she ended up killing herself. You know, there's that kind of mystery aspect where you're trying to figure it out, but it doesn't have a mystery or thriller feel. Instead, it's just this look at music and fame and the immense amount of pressure that this industry puts on young women. So this is The Unraveling of Cassidy Holmes, and it's by Alyssa R. Sloan. It sounds really Gloss. good. I loved Spice Girls when I was a <laughs> younger. I will, I will, I'm sad to admit it, but I did. See, then you could have been like a, a Gloss fan too. Gloss girl? Were. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and they all had the names. You know how like the Spice Girls were like so-and-so Spice? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we have Sassy Gloss, Rosy Gloss, Cherry Gloss, and Tasty Gloss. <laughs> tasty Ew. Gloss. So I went through a pretty long period of time where I wasn't reading Dual Timeline. I know Gasp. Like, I don't even know why that happened, but it did. And then a couple months ago, I saw that Kelly Bowen had released a dual timeline. And I didn't know that she had. I thought um, that she wrote specifically within the historical romance genre. And so I looked at this book. It's called The Paris Apartment. And I thought, I have to read this. A, because it's called The Paris Apartment. B, because it's dual timeline. And C, because it's by Kelly Bowen. So thank you, Shannon, for introducing me to Kelly Bowen. This book was just an incredible read. It's about a young woman um, in, I think it's like 2015, who um, discovers that when her grandmother passed away, she left her an apartment in Paris that nobody knew about, that she didn't even know her grandmother owned. And she opens the door to this apartment and discovers this perfectly preserved time capsule with magazines opened that indicate that the last time this apartment was open was in 1942. Um, It looks like whoever lived here just like put her life down for a moment and stepped out to go to the store or something and never came back. There's still, um, you know, uh, old uh, like food containers, like um, jarred food. There's uh, a dress just draped over the foot of the bed, open magazines and you know, she's really kind of distraught because she sees some things in this apartment that make her feel as though um, her grandmother was um, sort of susceptible to German propaganda from during the time um, of when, when Paris, when, when the Germans were occupying France. And she was pretty horrified by this. And so she starts doing a little bit more exploring and finds a bunch of paintings which leads her to contact this art dealer with a kind of shadowy past who has uh, a knack of restoring old paintings. And while he is in her apartment with her, they realize that the dressing room has a fake back wall in her, in the, like the, the closet, like the dressing room. And it's this whole trove of old paintings. And she discovers this secret room 
in addition to the, where the paintings are hidden. And she's just so interested in, you know, what in the world was her grandmother doing during the war? Because what she's seeing here does not fit the image of the grandmother that she knew throughout her life. So now we're back in the early 1940s and we meet Estelle. And Estelle is this amazing French socialite who goes to, you know, wonderfully glamorous parties. And basically we find is kind of like the darling of all of the German officers. They want her to be around them. And Estelle feels, you know, very, um, very loyal to Paris. And she's trying to figure out ways that she can help the resistance potentially. And in her apartment, just across the hall is her best friend and her family. And so she, I'm not going to say anything about that because it'll be a spoiler. So spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. So don't, so delete the part about the family. Thank you. (laughs) So Estelle is doing her part to support the resistance. And then we also meet a young woman named Sophie. And this book kind of shows how Sophie and Estelle's stories end up kind of converging at some point. And back in present day, as I think her name's Aurelia, I'm just not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. So that's why I wasn't going to say it. But as she is sorting through the apartment, she's just It leads to more and more questions and she's hoping to find the answers to this period of her grandmother's life that just feels so, so opposite of the very contained woman, sort of aloof woman that she's known all of her life. And I can't do this book justice because there's spoilers everywhere and I'm trying to avoid them, but it's just, it's a wonderful book. Um, I, I feel like the author did a ton of research into the era of World War II Um, what was happening in Paris and just um, the huge divide between those who sort of um, supported the German occupation and those who were oppressed by it. It's just a really beautiful story about resilience and finding inner strength and just what people will do to protect those that they love and to protect aspects of French culture that mean so much to them. This again is The Paris Apartment by Kelly Bowen and go forth and read, it's delightful. This garbled description is not beginning to do it justice, but I promise you, you won't regret it if you pick up this book. Kelly Bowen is one of my very favorite historical romance authors um, who's currently writing. And I'm curious now that she sort of made this foray into historical fiction um, I wonder if we'll see sort of more of that or if she'll return to romance or just you know where she'll go. I feel like no matter where she goes or what she does, she's going to do it well. That's sort of where I'm at with her I writing. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. This book makes me think about the books by Fiona Davis. Kind of, except in Paris rather than New York, but yes. Yeah. So my first book tonight is... The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. And this book takes place in 1791 and then two centuries later. So um, in 1791, we meet um, 
Bella, and she is an apothecary. And she used to kind of take care of people just like everyday people. But now she's changed her clientele. So her shop is in, um, in an alley, like in the back alley of London. And she gives out poisons um, to women who want to get rid of men in their lives for whatever reason. So there's rules that she kind of has people follow. So one of the rules is that the poisons must never be used against another woman. And then also that the names of the women who she helps must always be put into the apothecary's register, register. So things are going well for her until one night she's waiting for a new client to come in and who shows up, but a 12 year old girl named Eliza. And so Eliza's got her reasons why she needs this poison and Nella decides to help her and as their lives begin to intertwine some things happen that cause issues for Nella and her clients and she's worried that like her business and her clients are in danger so now we go off to 1991 we meet Caroline and she's in London after learning that her husband um, has committed adultery and she they're supposed to be um, like she's in London because she had planned this trip for their 10th anniversary so she's walking along the Thames River and she comes across an old apothecary vial and Caroline is she wants to be a historian Um, She's not had the easiest time getting there, but she really wants to be a historian. So discovering this apothecary vial gets her kind of really excited. And she's really wants to know, like, where is it from? What's it all about? And as she does her research, she discovers things that lead her to believe that she has found out what happened to the lost apothecaries. And that, my friends, is where I must leave you. I know it's sad, but it is this sad. is The Lost Apothecary, and it's by Sarah Penner. This has been on my to-be-read list since you talked about it, like when it first came out. For some reason, I really like yeah. books about poison. So my next book is the latest from Diane Chamberlain, who I still say everyone on this podcast should read um, at least one of her books. I think once you read one, you will read them all because she is amazing. Um, I know Natalia loves her too. And Christine is a big Diane Chamberlain fan. I don't think anyone else has I've read jumped on one this or train. two of her books, but I'm okay. not, I wouldn't say that I'm attached oh dear i i haven't read her yet sorry bad 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 people (laughs) i know (laughs) all right so we are going to talk about 
the last house on the street. And this one just came out actually on January 11th. Um, it is so, so excellent. So this is a story that takes place in 2010 and in 1965. So in 2010, we meet Kayla and Kayla is recently widowed. She and her husband were building their dream home in this new kind of up and coming neighborhood in um, Round Hill, North Carolina. And this neighborhood is known as Shadow Ridge. Everyone thinks this is kind of a silly, pretentious name because there's no ridge, but you know, okay. Like a lot of neighborhoods have silly names like this. And Kayla's husband dies in an accident. Um, he falls down a flight of stairs as, you know, in this kind of newly built house. And now she is left alone to raise their four-year-old daughter. And she's not really sure what she wants to do about this. Like, does she want to move into this house? It feels like kind of a waste if she doesn't, because this is the house that they've you know, been dreaming of for as long as they were married. But if she does move in there, she's kind of surrounded by all of the things that she's lost. Like there's so many memories of him that are bound up in this house. And so she just doesn't know what to do. So this elderly woman comes to visit her at her office and has some really strange and unwelcome things to say. And she's telling Kayla basically that she shouldn't move in there, that this Shadow Ridge place is, is very bad. And that basically <gasps> if she knows what's good for her, uh, she'll stay far away. And this really freaks her out because, you know, she has her own doubts about moving in, but like, who is this woman and why did she think it was necessary to come, you know, to her office and like tell her things. And it seems like she knows an awful lot about Kayla's life and Kayla does not understand who she is or how this is possible. So then we jump back to 1965 where we meet Ellie and Ellie is the daughter of a pharmacist. Um, she lives in Round Hill and she lives a, a pretty privileged life. Um, she is a pharmacology student. She's dating this man who everybody thinks is perfect for her. Um, in her mind, you know, she has some doubts about whether Reed is really the man of her dreams, but they have a, a comfortable relationship. So she hears about a group of students who are coming south from Northern universities, and they're coming to help African-Americans register to vote in, you know, 1965. And she's not sure why she feels so compelled to join this civil rights movement, but she really feels like it's the right thing for her to do. So she is the only Southerner in this group of Northern students and things are, are hard for her. She is forced to reckon with so much that she didn't see or didn't want to see about the people that she's been living with, the people who make up you know, her family, her friends, her community. And now she doesn't really know what to think about the South and this life that for her, you know, has been so good all, all along. And now she's learning that there is a, a darker side to this life and a darker side to the people that she's surrounded by. 
So we move back and forth between Kayla and Ellie, and we see the way the civil rights movement in the 1960s has far-reaching consequences. Like you can see elements of it all the way up to the 2010, you know, Kayla storyline. Um, I'm not going to tell you how Kayla and Ellie are connected because that would be a spoiler. Um, I will say there were a couple of elements of this that I found a little bit more predictable than I would like, but at its core, this is another really stellar offering from Diane Chamberlain. Um, it has all of the elements that I've come to appreciate about her work. Um, the both female characters are very strong, very relatable, but flawed enough, you know, that you can, you can feel like they're, they're authentic people. You know, they're not like these perfect caricatures. Um, she does such a good job of bringing to light both the things that we love and the things that we probably should abolish um, about the South. So this is The Last House on the Street by Diane Chamberlain, and I highly, highly recommend it. Her audio narrator is almost always Susan Bennett, and they are just such an excellent match. So I've made no secret over the years that I'm sort of obsessed with books by Simone St. James. I think she is an amazing author. I feel like her books are very, very evocative of very specific emotions. And for me, oftentimes it is delicious, icy fear. And I just think that she is an amazing author. And so she's written like two different dual timeline novels now. And I don't think I've talked about this one on the podcast, but I, I don't know, maybe I did. Um, this book is The Sundown Motel by Simone St. James, and this book is about Carly in 2017, and Carly's mother has recently passed away, and she wants to tie up some loose ends in her family because, you see, her Aunt Viv disappeared in 1982 before Carly was born, just up and disappeared. She was working at a motel. She was a clerk there, and she's just, she's gone. She's vanished. Her mother never heard from her sister again, and it was sort of a, a tragedy for her. And so Carly wants to go to this small town in upstate New York where her aunt worked at the Sundown Motel in 1982, and she wants to figure out what the hell happened to her because it's caused such upheaval and turmoil in her family. And so Carly goes to the Sundown Motel to become the night clerk, just as her aunt Viv had done back in 1982. And the Sundown Motel is sort of this rundown place off the highway, nothing amazing. And, you know, Carly's just kind of like ready to settle into this sort of boring job. And she's hoping that she can walk around and maybe find out some clues. Well, friends, the Sundown Motel isn't quite as mundane as she was led to believe. Because you see, things are happening at the Sundown Motel that cannot be explained. And then we go back to 1982 and we meet Viv, who's a young woman who is working as a night clerk at the Sundown in order to earn money to go off to New York City. She wants to be an actress. 
And so she's, she's there to earn some money and, you know, she's just like, whatever, this is temporary. And, you know, things at the sundown are so peculiar. She's heard rumors about it being haunted and she's like, whatever, she doesn't believe in that. She's a very, you know, feet solidly planted on the ground type of person. But the longer she is the clerk at the sundown, the more she sees things that are just unexplainable and freaky as all hell. And as Viv in 1982 and Carly in 2017 kind of go down parallel tracks of terror as they hurdle ever closer to their own climactic moments at the sundown, we learn what happens to Viv. And Carly gets embroiled in a very similar situation just years later. This book is, I would say, quite a good thriller um, with some pulse-pounding moments. To me, it's not as frightening as The Broken Girls or The Haunting of Maddie Claire, um, which I almost can't even talk about either of those, um, so I'm not going to. And um, But it really has, it's, it's a high-action book with lots of mystery and suspense and intrigue and ghostly things that will make you not want to read with the lights off. Um, there's some romance in one of the stories and, um, and just a lot of intrigue. And I loved it so very much. So this again is The Sundown Motel and it's by Simone St. James. Uh, Simone St. James. Did you read this one, Shannon? Because I- No, I want okay. to, but I haven't. So my next book is 20 Years Later by Charlie Donnelly. And this book takes place in 2001 um, at the World Trade Center. And then we fast forward 20 years. So in 2001, we meet Victoria. um, And she is at the World Trade Center visiting her lawyer when the planes hit and things happen. And then we fast forward 20 years later. So like at this point, we don't know what happened to Victoria, but we fast forward 20 years later and we meet Avery Mason. And Avery Mason is a TV reporter. um, And she, it's kind of like getting to the end of her season. So this is her first season as a host on this show. And she wants to get in, like she has to, um, co- she's going into contract talks for her, like for, for her next season. And so she's trying to discover some stories. Like she's looking into different stories that might kind of pique the interest of her viewers and also kind of get her pay raise. Like, that's kind of what she's always hoping for. So she discovers this DNA project that's going on to find people that are still missing. So they have a bunch of, like, little shards of bone, um, teeth, and, like, different pieces of people that are so small that wasn't able to be, like, figured out by normal means. So now 20 years later, they have this new process where they're able to test these little pieces um, and 
point and like match them to people that were missing. So we learn that Victoria Ford, um, who we met earlier, um, she has been discovered now. Um, and so Avery is really interested in the story. She feels like it's gonna really get viewers interested. So she starts to do her research. Um, she takes off in the summer, because she gets the whole summer off. So she decides she's gonna go head to New York and do some research. At the same time, she learns that there's some people that are really interested in her past. So we learn that Avery, um, her name, her official name is not actually Avery Mason. And there's oh. a reason why she doesn't go by her name. She doesn't want anything to do with her family. And there's a reason for this that I'm not going to give away. Um, but we meet in 2021. So remember I said we were in 2001 with Victoria Ford, but we also have 2021 where we have Avery, but we also meet Walt and he's a former FBI agent. Um, he's living in um, Jamaica. He was injured and they forced him to retire. Well, his mm -hmm. former boss has come down and would like him to kind of do a bit of contract work for them. Um, they want him to get close with Avery because they feel that she knows where her father is. So they're looking for her father and they've been looking for a really long time for him and they feel that she knows where he is. Avery sets up like an appointment with Walt um, because she learns that there's a connection that when he, back when he was like a police officer in New, somewhere in New York, one of the cases that he dealt with um, involved Victoria Ford, this person that has now, their remains have been discovered um, in, within the rubble from um, the towers in 2001. So she wants to learn more about Victoria. So she sets up a meeting with Walt and she learns that Victoria was being investigated for the murder of a, a well-known author. Um, he was found in a compromising position, oh. um, hanging and hanging from a rope in like on his mansion estate. And Victoria was accused of this. Um, Victoria's sister, Emma, she, while the towers were falling, Victoria left her this chilling message saying that she really, really would like her to, no matter what happens to her, she would really like Emma to prove that she did not commit this murder. She said that she feels that she, like she knows she's innocent and she wants Emma to prove it no matter what happens to her, like clear her name for her. So Ava, um, Avery learns about this recording and she promises Emma that she's gonna do her best and learn as much as she can so that Emma gets some closure. So together she gets to know Walt more and he gives her access to some of the casework and 
it's interesting to see like how the two timelines intertwine and I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to give away anything, but I quite enjoyed this book. Like as I was telling um, Shannon before we started, there's a bit of controversy in the review section on Goodreads about the use of um, 9-11 in the story. And it kind of confused me because I didn't feel like it was really sensationalizing anything or that we were really making what happened to people. Um, we'd, I didn't feel like he was really using it badly. So I am definitely recommend this book. So it's called 20 Years Later. And it's by Charlie Donnelly. This is an author <laughs> that I really want to check out. So my next pick came out um, the early part of 2021. This is Wild Women and the Blues by Denny S. Bryce. This is a story set in Chicago, both in 1925 and in 2015. So in 2015, we follow Sawyer. And Sawyer is a film student, his sister, was recently killed in an automobile accident that he feels very responsible for. And so he's just dealing with a lot of survivor's guilt. And he's working on a film that he's hoping can kind of ease some of his like difficult feelings around the death of his sister. So he goes to a senior care center to interview a woman who is 110 years old and her name is Honoré Delcour. And she has been living in this home for like the last 20 years. And he is interested in Honoré because he believes that part of this film that he's working on relates to her history as a chorus girl in 1925 um, in sort of the nightclub prohibition scene of jazz age Chicago. So he kind of gets an interview with Honoré under false pretenses. Um, he, I don't wanna say too much about this, because of spoilers, but he sort of presents things um, in a way that makes it seem like it's a lot more in Honoré's best interest to talk to him than it perhaps actually is. Um, but he does get in to see her and he starts asking her questions about her life. Now, she isn't really into this. She tells him that, you know, she has no real reason to talk with him about anything in her life. Like he doesn't know her and that's just it. Like she needs to find a way to make this worth her while if, um, you know, she really wants, if, if he really wants to talk to her. So she starts sort of countering the questions that he's asking her with similar questions that she starts asking him. Like, why is he poking his nose into these things that, you know, happened almost a hundred years ago? Like, what, what is the purpose of this? And he doesn't quite know what to tell her. He doesn't want to be vulnerable with Honoré. Um, he has a really hard time coming to terms with his own feelings. But slowly, Honoré does begin to reveal the secrets of her past. 
And she tells him a really fascinating story of like early Chicago. So we move back in time then to 1925 and Honoré is a chorus girl. She just got a job at the Dreamland Cafe, which is one of the most famous nightclubs of that time. And she's super excited. She feels like this is going to be her, like her ticket to something greater. She figures she's at the Dreamland and next, like maybe she can go to Broadway. That is like her ultimate goal. But she gets kind of swept up in the life of like high Chicago society. And she meets a lot of famous people, filmmakers, musicians, and a lot of things begin to happen to Honoré and not all of them are good. She finds herself put in some really untenable situations that she's not really sure how to get out of. This is a story of like forbidden romance it's a story of like all the things that we love about the 1920s, the, the prohibition era, like gangsters and really fancy dresses, women kind of starting to take steps toward their own kind of freedom. Um, but it's also a, a dark story of what happens when people in power are determined not to give up that power. Um, Sawyer's story is a little bit less, I think, flashy than Honoré's, but it is such a nice counterpoint to kind of see how the things that she's relating to him indirectly relate to his, like the struggle that he's going through now. Um, it kind of shows us that even if we don't always recognize it, like we are connected in so many ways to people that might seem incredibly different from ourselves. This is a debut novel. Bryce has another book coming out later this year that I'm super excited to read. But this one is Wild Women and the Blues by Denny S. Bryce. And this has this, been on my TBR for a year. <laughs> I need to read it. This book sounds so good. It is so, so good. It's, it moves slowly. It's not like a super action-packed read that you're just like inhaling. Um, but it, it's definitely one that I recommend. So I tried to only do one World War II dual timeline book. I really did. But, but it didn't work. It didn't work because I really, really like that era in terms of there's just so many stories to be told. And so I'm going to talk about The Paris Orphan by Natasha Lester. This is my first book I've read by this author, and it won't be my last. Again, um, like I said about the Kelly Bowen, it was incredibly well-researched. And um, in 1942, we meet Jessica May. She is a model for Vogue. And she's just sort of hanging out in New York, living the life, you know, like doing all these different photo shoots and going to parties and drinking Manhattans. And she's living with her French lover and just sort of like living this lifestyle. But, you know, the war is going on and she 
sort of feels compelled to help in some way. And she doesn't know how until she's told that for now she can't be a model for Vogue because a picture of her was used in a Kotex ad. And that is just horrifying because we can't associate Jessica May, the model, with, you know, tampons and feminine articles of that sort. It's just not done. Not done. And she finds out it was her French lover, Emile, who did this to her. So she's feeling disillusioned and brokenhearted. And her editor says, well, why don't you go over to Europe and take pictures for us? There's a couple other um, female reporters over there. And so you can go and take some pictures, report about the war. And so Jessica decides this is a good idea. And so she goes to England. And first of all, she has to even be approved to go to Europe because women should not be anywhere near fighting. It's just not done. And finally she gets approval and she goes to England and she meets this very oily man who is responsible for kind of keeping track of her future and he has all the power. And it is a Herculean effort for her to be able to leave this hotel where she has been cloistered in London to be able to go and do what she has been sent to Europe to do, which is report on the war. And so at first she's sent to Italy. She's told to go and like stay at this hospital. If she, um, if she even goes anywhere near the front line, goes near the fighting, her, uh, her visa will be revoked and she'll be sent back to New York and she won't get to do any more reporting. Well, that'd be great, except for the hospital that she was supposed to go to. This is her very first day reporting. The hospital that she was supposed to go to has just been attacked. Mm. And she ends up like in the midst of the fighting in a trench with Captain Dan Hallworth. And as she's sort of like flipping her shit, forgive my very dignified way of describing this, but she's in the middle of like guns going off and like grenades. And she's like in this trench in the mud with, with these soldiers who are firing and dying. And she's watching this happen. And all she can do is stay alive. And so after all the fighting is done, she goes and she starts, you know, capturing photos of this experience that she's been having. And I think she might even take a few photos during the fighting as well. Anyway, this is a very traumatizing experience for Vogue fashion model, Jessica May. And she really wrestles with, you know, am I doing the right thing by staying here in this traumatizing place where, oh my God, I could actually die. Or should I just like pack it in and go back to New York and wait a year and then go back to Vogue as a model? And the only reason why she sort of feels like she has the strength to sort of stay the course is because of the support that she gets from Captain Dan Hallworth in this situation. And while she's there, she also meets a little girl named Victorine who is an orphan. She lost her parents as everyone fled Paris. Um, Actually, basically when she was a very, very, very newly born infant. And Now she stays like at the different camps and Captain Dan Hallworth is kind of looking out for her for reasons I will not tell you. So during the 1940s, the story is of Jessica and Dan and their lives, but it's also about the way that women are viewed in this time. It's about the way that women are just so discredited constantly and just undermined and belittled and disrespected and how hard 
the female journalists during World War II had to fight to even get close and to be able to share stories of the war. In fact, there was a whole debate about, you know, women were not allowed to go um, to the beaches of Normandy or even go to France and, and drop from parachutes because it could be detrimental to the female anatomy to be dropped out of a plane. It could, it could wreck some important parts of theirs. So oh. that's according to men. Yes, uh, men decided this. So Jessica, while the war is being fought, she's fighting a war for her stories and her photos to get equal, to have the equal opportunity as her male counterparts to tell the stories of war. In 2005, we have Darcy. She's Australian. She is coming to France to pack up. She's uh, an art um, handler. So what she does is she packs up pieces. She's going to take some pieces of this photographer who's only known as the photographer. And she's going to take them to an exhibit that's going to be done on this person in Australia. And while she's in this beautiful, beautiful chateau in France with this lovely man that she's sort of developing feelings for, she's learning more and more about the photographer through her work. And she's also learning more about her mother, Victorine, who seems to have a story that Darcy is very unaware of and other, you know, things in her life that that, uh, Darcy had no clue about. And how do the stories of Jessica and Darcy intersect? Also, what role does Victorine have to play in this whole patchwork and tapestry of people's lives? This was a really wonderful book. Um, I honestly had some challenges reading it at times. It was very deep and emotional and intense. Um, And the thing I liked the most about the book was the way that these women in the 1940s did not put up with the inequitable treatment they were receiving and demanded to be treated like the men, like the male reporters. And I found the ending of this to be a bit bittersweet for my happily ever after tendencies. But yet, you know, I read this book several days ago and I can't stop thinking about it, Um, which is why I am recommending that if you enjoy books about World War II and about strong women, um, about just how people were able to find hope within very, very trying times, you know, I I recommend The Paris Orphan by Natasha Lester with the caveat that uh, for anybody who has, uh, needs trigger warnings about sexual violence, there is some of that in this book and to just go into it forewarned. So this again is The Paris Orphan by Natasha Lester. It's the first book that I've read by this author and it will not be the last. Didn't you read... um... A Kiss for Mr. Fitzgerald. Oh, yes, I did. That's right. I always I always forget that that was one of hers because it's such a different style. It's so different from... It's a, yeah, it's more romance. It's vaudeville. It's, um, it's a completely different, and I loved it. I, I'm sorry. This is not my first book by Natasha Lester, um, but it's my first of her, like, dual timeline World War II era. World War II. Yeah, she's got a bunch yeah. of them. Paris Orphan, The Paris Secret, The Paris Seamstress. She has a new one called Riviera House that just came out that I um, actually have um, downloaded to read. I just, I haven't gotten to it yet. It's another dual timeline. So yeah, that one looks very good. I was looking it at does. it. It um, does. I haven't read it yet either. 
So my next book is Furyborn. Imperium number one by Claire Legrand. And I can't really tell you exactly like what years this takes place, but the two timelines happen like centuries apart. So the book opens up with um, Queen Riel giving birth and some things happen and she gives her daughter over to a young boy. Um, I can't remember exactly how old he is. I want to say he's eight. Um, his name Whoa. is Simon. He's eight years old. She hands him her daughter and tells him that he's the only one that can save her, that he needs to take care of her daughter because things are happening and they need to, they need to get away. So he, she needs, um, she would like him to run, take her daughter and run. So Simon has a special ability. He's able to time travel. So he takes her daughter and he knows that he's got a really important job and he knows that he's got to do it right. He hasn't done a lot of traveling, but his dad showed him how to do it and he feels like he can do it, but he's so stressed out, but he, he does it. He, he takes her and he holds on tight and he does his thing. Well, somehow they get separated. So our two timelines are with two very strong women. One is Rael and our second timeline is with Eliana and she's the one that's like several centuries later so in Riel's timeline her and her friend they decide that they're going to get away from their guards so so her and her friend um his name is Onrik I think they don't understand why their parents won't allow them to enter this like race that's always taking, every takes place every year at this time. Um, and so they decide that they're going to dress up. So they've got scarves covering their faces. They've got like clothes that they would not normally wear. And they grab their horses and they get ready and they take off onto the race. Well, during the race, they're doing their thing. They're doing well. They're keeping up with each other. But then... Onrik is a t- um, attacked by some assassins. Some assassins try to, like, they try to kill him. But Riel is not going to allow this to happen. So she does her thing and she takes care of them, which exposes some of her magical abilities that people didn't know. And part of her problem, like, her magic is she's still kind of getting to know what she can do and what she can't do. So she ends up setting a whole bunch of stuff on fire. Like that's kind of what happens. She just had like this big explosion. Um, And so the king is not very happy about this. And he's forced by some of his high officials to put her through some trials and she has to pass them in order to prove that she is 
the queen of light. So there's this prophecy that says at some point, two queens, the queen of light and the queen of blood, um, they're going to, they're going to be discovered. Like they're going to be born. They're going to enter the world and they're going to save their worlds. Our next timeline, as I said, is with Eliana and she is a bounty hunter and she is, she works for the empire. Like that's, she's forced into this job and that's what she has to do. Well, something happens and her mother gets taken. So she's forced to join with a rebel faction in order to find, to go out and to try and find her mom. So things happen and, and that's kind of where I have to leave it anyway. So this is Fury Born, Imperium number one, and it's by Claire Legrand. I have heard so much good stuff about this book, and I love that it is fantasy told in a dual timeline format because we don't see a lot of that. All right, so my last pick for tonight is a thriller. This is Too Good to be True by Carola Lovering. So this is kind of one of those things that they're calling domestic suspense now. So this like suspense involving the family unit. So we start out with Skye and Skye is engaged to be married. She's really caught up in planning her wedding. She's very sure that now that this Burke guy has come into her life, everything will be perfect. And Skye hasn't had the easiest of lives. Um, her mother passed away when she was 11. And ever since then, she has dealt with really severe OCD. And it's been hard for her to get to know people, for her to let people in, and really just to exist in kind of what people would consider a normal way. But Burke has 100% like, accepted her and has given her hope that maybe she can overcome her mental illness. But then we go back in time some years and we meet Heather. Heather is 17 and she's kind of grown up on the wrong side of town. And she hates that about her life. She really wants to make something of herself. She wants to escape this small town and live a life unlike anything that her family has known. So she gets a job as kind of like a nanny slash mother's helper. Um, this is right around the end of her senior year of high school. And she's trying to figure out like what's going to be her ticket out. You know, she doesn't want to stay in town. So she starts working for this family and she realizes that by doing so, she is exposing herself to like a different type of life. And maybe this is what she needs. Now, remember Burke from Sky's story? Well, Heather has also been dating Burke. And they are one another's first love. She really, like, she hates that she loves him. She keeps telling herself she needs to get away from him. She needs to leave him behind. Like, he's holding her back. And she's just not sure that, you know, she wants to stay with him, but 
the thought of being without him is really more than, than she can bear. So we see both of these women who have deep attachments to Burke in different parts of his life. You know, he's like a young man when he is dating Heather. And then when we meet Skye, you know, this is some years later. So he is like in his you know, mid thirties at this point. And we start to see that both of these women have ties to him that are not necessarily rooted in the truth. And so how do Skye and Heather's stories converge? Who is actually married to Burke? Like, did Heather manage to get away or did she marry him? If she did, then how is it that Skye is going to marry him? Did something happen to Heather long ago? No one knows. Well, I know because I read <laughs> it, but you don't know. And if you want to know, then you should also pick this up. This is Too Good to Be True by Carola Lovering. This is her second novel. Her debut is called Tell Me Lies. And it just came in for me at the public library. So I'm very, very excited for it. This book sounds awesome. Yes, this is a Brooke book, not a Stacy book. Not a Stacy book. No, but no. a Brooke like Natalia book for sure. So I have to thank Shannon for my final book because we were talking about books for this episode and I asked her what she was going to talk about and she told me and I promptly forgot what she told me and I was going through books and I saw a book description and I thought, I need this. This must be mine. And then for some reason I went back and like reread our entire text thread because I thought, well, what if this is one of the books that Shannon's talking about? And it was, but she <laughs> shared it because she's good like that. So all hail Shannon for sharing this book with me because <laughs> I loved it so much. And so this is The Light of Luna Park by Addison Armstrong. And I loved this book. I don't even have words for how much I love this book. It's 1926 and we meet Althea. And she is a nurse. She is basically very close to qualifying as a nurse. She's finishing up her rotations. She lives in um, a residence for female nursing students. And she is in obstetrics. She is working with women who are in labor and delivery. And she's having a really hard time because, you know, Back in 1926, if, if a child was premature, it was sort of viewed by doctors in hospitals that it was sort of God's plan if they didn't survive. Um, and there were also some who believed that even if the child survived, they would then produce weak offspring. Oh, eugenics. Totally eugenics. I didn't even know that was a thing in the U.S. till I read this book. Shows my lack of education, right? And so as she is going through and, you know, assisting with labor and delivery, she has found this article about this doctor at Luna Park on Coney Island who has incubators where he, the survival rate of these babies is higher. And 
on the downside, though, even though he's saving lives, he's exhibiting these children for money. So they're sort of oddities in a way because they're premature children in incubators. And while he's saving them and, and keeping many of them alive, he's also allowing the public to gawk at them. So it's this weird dichotomy, but babies are living. And when she shows this article to the doctor after she witnesses the death of yet another premature child, which really traumatizes her, he blows her off and says, yeah, no, <laughs> like we're not doing this. Like it's God's plan. And like leaves her and says, if you talk about this again, you're done as a nurse. Well, then a while later, another couple comes in and the woman gives birth to a premature baby girl. And Althea is just distraught. She just cannot, 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 cannot watch another child not live because of people's inability to understand that these incubators are saving lives. And so she makes a choice, a choice between what she thinks is right and what the doctors at Bellevue Hospital want her to do. And this choice will say, will change her life forever. And now it's 1950, it's December of 1950, and young married Stella Wright lives with her husband in a small town in upstate New York. And she is a teacher for students with disabilities. And she's struggling because in 1950, children with disabilities are not tre treated with any sort of, their treatment is very inequitable and very shameful within the schools. And she's also struggling because her mother has just died. And that is just sort of making everything about her job and the struggles that she's experiencing just feel even more overwhelming. Not to mention her husband, who she loves dearly, has returned from the war with nightmares and PTSD and will not talk to her about it. So she's feeling very alone without her mother and with um, a very unsupportive faculty at her school. And so she makes a decision and she leaves and goes to New York City to deal with packing up her mother's belongings. And while she's doing this, she finds a letter that sort of forces her to question everything she thought she knew about her life and about her mother. And that's all I'm gonna say about the description of the book. Um, I will say that for me, one of the most compelling aspects of this book, I only just last year learned about Dr. Kumi, I think is how you say his name on Coney Island um, and what he did. I think he started with incubators around like the turn of the 20th century like 1902, I think, and had them in uh, Coney Island, but also Atlantic City and a couple other places I don't know about. Um, and his, his incubators remained at Coney Island until the early 1940s. And just to think that there are people who would like pay to see these premature babies trying to survive and how desperate were the parents that they allowed people to pay 10 cents to see their children laying in incubators, trying their best to breathe and survive. And it, to me, it was such an interesting part because this man is saving lives on one hand and so skeezy on the other. Yes. Um, and, but yet what he did to, you know, with, with incubators and children and, and life-saving 
it's, it's, it's a very interesting situation. So I really, it sounds sort of morbid and weird to say, but I really enjoyed reading that aspect of the story a lot. I learned a lot about Coney Island and about that experience. So this again is The Light of Luna Park by Addison Armstrong. And I believe it's uh, her debut novel. And I will certainly continue to read other books by this author because she, this book was so stark and interesting and emotional to read. I really enjoyed everything about it. I'm going to be adding mm-hmm. this to my list because it's yeah, really interesting. Like this. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I think there's a lot about like medical history that is appalling. And yet without it, like if this guy hadn't done all those studies with incubators, like where would, where would we be? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like really unnerving to think about, you know, this is something that people actually like paid to gawk at. So my last book is The Girl in the Picture by Carrie Barrett. So this book takes place in 1855 and then over a century later. So in um, 1855, our main character's name is Violet and she's an 18 year old girl who wants to be an artist. Um, Her father is a widowed industrialist, so often he's off doing his business in different countries while she's at home. So her father doesn't really want her to do much with her art. Like, he just wants her to go find a husband. Like, that's just, that's what he wants her to do. But she is determined that she wants to be an artist. And, like, she's very good at it. So one day when she's working on her, one of her art pieces um, on the beach, so she lives on the beach, um, she meets Edwin. And Edwin is kind of a sleazy guy. And as we learn more about him, he just definitely does not improve. So he tells her that he'll, if she gets to know, like if she kind of becomes friends with him, that she he'll be able to connect her with some of the really high people in the art world. Um, oh. Some artists that she knows and Run that away. she really, really wants to, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> that like an artist that she really, really would love to meet. He says, oh, I just had, an, I had dinner with him the other week when I was out on a business trip, blah, blah, blah. Like total, like whatever, poor girl. That, that's all I had to say. So Edwin lives next door with Francis, his wife, um, and he is not a good man. And Francis has seen this behavior before. Like he sees him on the beach talking to Violet and she's worried because she's seen him do this before. So she warns Violet that she needs to be careful about Edwin. But Edwin, but Violet so badly wants to become an artist that she kind of like brushes off her concerns. Um, So things are progressing between Violet and Edwin. And as things are, something happens and there's some people who die 
next door. So now we go to, what did I say it was? Like over a century later. And we meet Ella. So Ella is a thriller writer, which I thought was awesome. And she has moved to this home on the cliff with her young family. And she's getting her attic room all set up for writing. She's had this writer block and she just feels like this place is just going to really help her. So she's getting it all set up and she discovers a painting of a young woman. And it just kind of gets her thinking like, who is this girl and what's her story? And she's not really able to get into her book, but she get more and more wants to know about this woman. So she learns about her night that her name was Violet. And she also learns that there was someone who died in the house next door. So she decides that she really need, wants to know what happened. And she wants to know more about Violet and Violet's story. And I'm going to leave it there because I don't want to. It's, a, it's not a really long book. So I don't want to spoil anything, but I really enjoyed it. Like I loved learning about kind of like the, a little bit about um, Violet. I liked learning about her love of art. It really bothered me to see Edwin and how he took advantage of her, but I guess it's a story, but I really enjoyed it. So this is The Girl in the Picture and it's by Carrie Barrett. She has one called The Hidden Women that I really want Ooh. to read. I'll I know. I love that title. I like it too. <laughs> All right. So this concludes this round of dual timeline novels. We've done these episodes before. So if you're looking for more recommendations, you can go back and check out a few other dual timeline episodes. You'll have to go back kind of far because it's been a little <laughs> while since we've done one, but they do exist. Thank you to Stacy and Brooke for participating tonight. Thanks, as always, goes out to Christine for all of her editing. And we thank each and every one of you so very much for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. All right. Take care, ladies. All right. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Yes. I'm going to stay till you. I want to make sure the recording oh, is. Oh, yes. So I can turn off the recording.
let's say recording stopped. It hasn't said 